0: This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. You can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won’t change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
0: And welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, on the 27th of September, which is just two weeks' time, uh, the government will produce a budget. It will be, I imagine, the most difficult budget that politicians in this country or any other country has ever had to write. Um, at uh, On Friday and Saturday of this weekend, Pascal Donoghue, who's president, of the Euro, Euro group of finance ministers met in Prague. And in his opening address, Pascal Donahue sketched out the following scenario Imagine a shopkeeper whose business only just survived the lockdowns associated with COVID. The Irish finance minister told colleagues, Now, just as things are finally turning a corner, he or she Suddenly, faces a fivefold increase in energy bills. What should policymakers tell them? There needs to be, Pascal Dunhu argued, a message of hope. We're joined now by one of our leading economists, uh, Jim Power, to discuss this dilemma. Jim, as we uh, talk uh, this morning, the speculation is that people could be facing uh, this year gas and electricity bills of around €6,000. And as Pascal who outlined there, this follows on from COVID. Uh, it will, of course, affect every individual. It will affect every business. How bad is this in historical terms? And what can we do, or what can government do to somehow mitigate this?
2: Um. Uh, Yes, Eamon. I I think those of us of a certain age would um, remember what happened back in the 1970s. um, In 1973, and again in 1979, we had two very significant global oil price shocks as a result of war in the Middle East. um, And that at that stage, I mean, the global economy and the Irish economy were much more dependent on oil than would be the case today. But you have to go back to that period for a similar shock in terms of energy prices. And if you look at the latest inflation number from Ireland last week for the month of August, um, overall inflation was up by 8.7%. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. If you look at the annual increases, electricity up over 38%, gas up over 56%, home heating oil almost 73%. Um, and then for motors, diesel prices up 346 petrol up 23.5%. And it's clear that the major contribution to the increase in inflation and the increase in the cost of living is energy and energy-related costs. So, for example, of the 8.7% increase in prices, housing, water, electricity, and gas um, contributed 3.27%, transport 2%. Okay, so they are by far the major contributors to the increase in the cost of living. So this is very much an energy crisis. There is no doubt about that. Um uh, but I, I guess on the downside, a further downside is the fact that food price inflation is also starting to become a significant issue, as I've discussed with you in the past. But the- yeah, and, and
0: that food p- price inflation is driven to a large extent, is it not, by the gas increases and the war in Ukraine?
2: It, it, it is indeed. Uh, the war in Ukraine has had a huge impact on the supply of um foodstuffs like wheat particularly, but also um, soy and and so on. And, you know, the sunflower oil and stuff like that, that's a very important ingredient in food Grain production. also, yes. Uh, yeah, but if you look at the increase in input costs for Irish farmers in the last 12 months, um, fertilizer prices are up dramatically. Um, energy prices related to the production of food are up dramatically. So this is very much... Um, a problem that is primarily driven by the war in Ukraine. But unfortunately, uh, the war in Ukraine um, on the 24th of February, when it commenced, came on top of a global economy that was still struggling to work through the legacy impacts of COVID on the supply of various goods and materials. So it was a shock coming on top of a shock, And we obviously now have a very, very significant cost of living crisis. And, you know, you mentioned the impact on gas bills. And I look today at natural gas prices. Um, They are up over 55 percent on this time last year. But uh, the good news is that over the last month, Natural gas prices have fallen by about 40% and indeed they're down further today. So the situation for natural gas prices is improving, but this is a relative improvement. It's coming from an incredibly high level. Natural gas prices are, you know, still significantly above where they were a year ago. And of course, there's an even bigger fear uh, apart from the price of um, gas and energy, there's also a huge doubt about the continuity of supply of yes. energy. Um, I'm just back from California and um, the, that state has experienced significant heat problems, climate problems in recent times and there are signs on all the motorways asking or the the freeways asking people to conserve energy, particularly during peak times and last Friday, California came on the brink of having a major power outage um, and and that's that that's, so that that that's hugely significant uh, but it's it's and indeed Gavin Newsom the governor of um California, who has been a major advocate of the electrification of the motor fleet. He was asking people last week not to charge their electric vehicles because it was putting too much pressure Man. on the electricity grid. So it's quite extraordinary. And the same sorts of issues are at play here in Europe. Um, you know, the the energy supply is hugely problematical at the moment. And um, Eamon Ryan would have said in a few interviews over the last week that he hopes we can avoid um, power outages this winter. Uh, but obviously he can't guarantee it. So the power supply is a huge issue. So it's supply, it's price, and it's all resulting in a very, very significant crisis as we move into the winter months when the demand for electricity and energy generally rises anyway. So um huge problem. And um, on September 27th, when the government presents the budget for 2023, you can be guaranteed that this energy crisis... Um, And indeed, the food crisis will have a huge impact on what that budget actually contains.
0: Now, just let me ask you a question that has been bouncing around in my brain and many others, I guess. There are constant calls for windfall taxes, uh, both here and in the UK and indeed uh, across Europe. And the basis for those calls seems reasonable enough on its face. That is that the energy companies are making vast profits, billions, and therefore why shouldn't they be subject to a a windfall tax? The first question, though, is if things are as bad as they are, how are they making billions?
2: Uh, Basically because um, the price of the commodity they sell uh, has gone up dramatically because of a global supply crisis. Yeah, but is so, it that?
0: But the, the the global supply supply crisis would explain a shortage and therefore a premium on getting it. But to put a big chunk of profit on top of that seems to
2: be irresponsible. Well, but, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the 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 bottom line is they am are. Am I missing something? Jim? Uh, no, you're not missing something. I mean, they they are. I, I guess they are the beneficiaries of chance at the moment, um, in the sense that, you know, because of the Ukraine situation coming on top of the COVID situation, um, that there, there has been significant disruption to the production of, um, gas and indeed oil and coal. So for, the companies that are selling this product into the consumer market, um, the price has gone up dramatically, um, and yet their input costs would not have risen to anything like the same extent. So, significant windfall profits are being made, and indeed, the European Commission is currently negotiating a piece of legislation which would cap the earnings of non-gas Fossil fuel companies. Okay. And, and basically what that means is that if the price, if their earnings go above a certain level, um, that will be paid over to the European Commission and that money will then be distributed across the countries of the European Union in order to compensate them for the high prices. So in a sense, it is a windfall tax. Naturally. The companies themselves that would be subject to these windfall taxes are arguing that it will damage their ability to invest in future energy production and that it might actually result in higher prices. But the, the moral argument for a windfall tax is certainly a very strong one at the moment because it is quite incredible that these companies are making huge windfall profits at the moment, totally at the expense of the consumers of energy, be they businesses, um, particularly small businesses or households. So the moral argument for a windfall tax is very strong. But I think we need to be careful about how that windfall tax is actually engineered. And it strikes me that the European Commission's proposal about capping earnings does appear to make sense. But you would not want a situation where actually um, these measures further increase the price of energy. Um, So it 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 is a delicate balancing act. But I think, as I say, the moral and political um, ground behind this is very strong at the moment. So um, I think the European Commission's proposal will probably cross the line. um, And Eamon Ryan was sort of promising last week that Ireland would be a significant beneficiary of These windfall tax gains, as they're distributed across the member countries of the European Union,
0: right? Uh, How is uh, the price set? Just by the market?
2: Uh, Yeah, the price is set by the market, and um, so it's it's basically a demand supply situation. Um, But the the point about this is that natural gas is a key. Gas is a key ingredient in the production of electricity. electricity okay. Yes. But, but the way the electricity market is priced is that the, okay, we, we produce electricity around Europe and indeed around the world in a number of different ways. You know, there's fossil fuel production. There is alternative energy, be it wind, solar, and so on. And then gas becomes the marginal um, product used in the production of electricity and in the electricity markets as I understand it that it's the price of the marginal unit of electricity produced um, that sets the price of electricity. So in other words Um, It is the price of gas rather than the price of renewables that will determine what the consumer will pay for electricity. And despite the fact that the cost of producing renewable energy has fallen significantly over the last decade gas is the marginal commodity that's used in electricity production, and that sets the price for the electricity that the consumer is charged. And that's why we see these natural gas prices feeding directly into electricity costs. So it's, it's, it's a complicated pricing mechanism, but suffice to say that without getting lost in the technicalities, that Natural gas prices dictate the price we pay for electricity as consumers and as businesses. And with natural gas prices at elevated levels, with uncertainty about the future supply, uh, depending, of course, on what happens, uh, Russian gas supply into Europe over the coming months and the war in Ukraine. Um, it's uh, it's imposing huge problems and uh, is giving rise to this cost of living crisis for households, but also it's a huge crisis for small and medium businesses particularly. Yes. There is a story in the Irish Times today um, about a craft brewery in Inchicore, one that I visited because they have a, a nice pizza place there and they produce great beers called Rascals. And the founder of that company was suggesting that um, previously he was paying two cents per unit of gas to produce the beer. He's now been charged 20 cents. And that's a dramatic increase. Yes, And obviously, he's not in a position to pass that on to the consumer because, you know, the, the craft beer market is a very competitive market. And there is certainly um, a high price elasticity of demand, I suspect, for that product. So uh, his margins are being squeezed dramatically. And his biggest problem is, um, and i I sort of taking this from the interview in The Irish Times today, he has no idea about what it's going to look like over the coming months. So he's obviously seriously concerned about the survival of his business in this sort of environment. And indeed, you know, that's just a case study, but I think it's writ large across the SME sector in the country at the moment. So this energy crisis is not just a household crisis. It is also very much a cost of doing business crisis. Yes. So it's it's a huge, huge issue for our economy, but we're not unique. It's exactly the same in the United States. It's the same. And in, in fact, it's probably worse in the UK at the moment. And uh, because Brexit has had a huge impact on energy costs there as well. And of course, it's a problem across the European Union. So Ireland is not unique. But, you know, having said that, it's a huge problem and will dominate what we see in the budget on um, September 27th.
1: in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Now, uh, the government will obviously want to assist people. Um, £6,000 is not in people's, you know, it's not where they can get to at all. What can the government do in terms of capping? Uh, if, for example, the British government... Um, with the new Prime Minister Liz Truss, has guaranteed that for two years, people won't have to pay more than 2500 for their gas per annum. The government will bridge the gap uh, for two years. It's a very expensive uh, measure, which is expected to cost £150 billion sterling. This, of course, comes on top of what they did and what our government did during COVID, is that, um, in your view, uh, sustainable?
2: Well, the the UK um, energy pricing situation is different than here in Ireland. Um, they have what's called an energy price cap, and they basically, you know, put a cap on what energy is going to cost the consumer and business over the next three months, and and that's based on um, the gas price over the preceding three months or so, and then forecasts on what the experts are predicting natural gas prices will do over the next three months. Um, and what Liz trusts, the changes she's made is that she's she's put a further cap on that, ensuring that regardless of what happens gas price, there's a limit to how much UK consumers and households will have to pay um, that 150 billion sterling um is an estimate mainly made by experts um, in the energy market and economists and so on. Um, to my knowledge, it's not a figure that Liz Truss has actually spoken about. But I would sense that given what's happened, natural gas prices over the last month, and there's a fair chance, you know, natural gas prices could continue to decelerate from here, uh, we would hope um, that it'll probably end up costing a lot less than 150 billion. But um I, the, the, the situation is that I think Liz Truss recognizes that um, if gas prices just continue to increase dramatically, more dramatically than is currently penciled in, that is just going to have a devastating impact on the UK economy. So I think it's a pretty sensible, pragmatic response to this cost of living crisis. Here in Ireland, uh, we don't have these price caps. Um, I'm not sure the political system here would be capable of implementing such price caps. So what's going to happen um, on September 27th, uh, although the detail is obviously not known yet, but will become apparent over the next couple of weeks as the negotiations are now starting in earnest at government level. But in early July, the Department of Finance published the Summer Economic Statement and that laid out the parameters for Budget 2023. And what it basically said was that 6.7 6.7 billion would be allocated in that budget. 1.05 billion would be directed towards reducing the tax burden, mainly the widening of tax bans and allowances to try and accommodate for higher rates of inflation. The rest of it, you know, 5.6 billion or thereabouts, will go towards expenditure increases. So social welfare, Um, other expenditure increases okay so and and apparently as far as pascal donahue and michael mcgrath are concerned that 6.7 billion is a red line in the sand okay um or whatever the phrase is a line in the sand yeah (laughs) i'm mixing my metaphors here okay but what's now going to happen is that in addition to that 6.7 billion there will be a significant package of measures introduced of a one-off nature, and I guess that that package could cost two to three billion. And the, the reason why that six point seven is a line in the sand, which I think the two ministers will insist on adhering to. I presume, at least that's what they're saying. Um, the reason why they can implement beside that. A package of two to three billion is because these will be once off measures that will not feed into the budgetary arithmetic next yes. year and the year after. You can just so, add
0: them to the national debt.
2: Exactly. And what they will do is, um, Uh, They, you know, they will introduce further electricity bill credits. We got 200 euro credit on our bills in March. Um, it's, and it's speculated in the media yesterday that you could have three of those packages over the coming months. So in other words, we might get 600 euro credit on our ESB bills and then there will be and that will be a universal payment. It'll be given to everybody regardless of whether they really need it or not. So a very expensive measure, but in the current political and economic environment, it's one um, that the government obviously believes is necessary. But there will also be other measures directed, I think, and I hope at the much less well off in society who are really expose this energy price surge at the moment. So in a nutshell, what we could see announced on September 27th is a 6.7 billion package of ongoing measures in taxation expenditure, plus probably two to three billion in one-stop expenditure to address the immediate problem. But those one-stop expenditures will not, you know, be replicated next year and the year after. So it's 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 going to be an incredibly expansionary budget, and I suspect it's going to be a budget that will be full of um, a lot of detailed measures, small measures, detailed measures, and so on.
0: Let me ask you about the business side of this. Uh, there's two sides to it: the the, the needs of business, uh, businesses which create employment, and the domestic user and the people in their own private capacity as householders or apartment owners or whatever. In the business side, uh, is the result of this price rise going to feed into inflation, of course, but put people out of business, and particularly in the hospitality industry where they have other problems such as a shortage of labor um, in restaurants, in bars, you see signs up everywhere, uh, staff wanted, staff wanted. Are we facing something really unprecedented here and, and potentially very, very bad? Because we've known full employment now for quite some time, or virtually full employment, haven't we?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, we have. I mean, w- one of the amazing features of the last couple of years has been the remarkable buoyancy of the labour market. Uh, We have 2.55 million people in employment, which is by far the highest level we've ever seen at the end of June. We have an unemployment rate um, in August of 4.3% of the labour force, which is virtually full employment in this jurisdiction. So, uh, and as you say, you see signs all over the place for staff and staff recruitment and retention is still a huge, huge issue. And it's a huge issue in the States, in the UK, across Europe. There is this massive um, staffing problem as a result of COVID-19. Um, the one, one of the, you know, if you think about the business implications of this, there are many, but basically, when you see the sort of increase we've seen in energy costs over the last 12 months, and when you see the sort of increase we're seeing as households in our energy bills, Basically, that is a reallocation of household spending away from other forms of consumer spending into energy spending. So there's a direct transfer of resources from normal consumption. Over to energy consumption, and that obviously is benefiting the energy suppliers significantly. But what that means is well, that it's
0: affecting it's affecting it's, employment. It's
2: it's, it's affecting consu- and business. It's affecting consumer spending. Okay, there's no doubt about that. And we've seen we've seen over the last two or three months of retail sales data that um, consumer spending is now consumer spending on non-energy is starting to decline and it's becoming a more challenging environment for any customer-facing business. There's no doubt about that. So that's one thing. Um, spending is under pressure. No, no no surprises there. The second issue, and this is one that's only now starting to feed through the system, the cost of doing business has increased dramatically for businesses over the last 12 months. Um, you know, if you, if you think about... That the conversation six months ago was, as the COVID supports were gradually eased, yes. you know, how many businesses would be in serious difficulty? And, and the view was that you could see a bit of a tsunami of smaller businesses going to the wall. Um So that situation still persists. But now coming on top of this, we have this massive increase in the cost of doing business, particularly energy costs. And, um, so there's a double whammy really hitting. Well, it's a treble whammy, actually. There's the COVID legacy. There is the reduction in spending and there is the significant increase in the cost input cost the cost of doing business. So small businesses are really coming under the cost. Now it is not yet been reflected in the labor market. And as I say, this, the, the, the prevailing theme out there is still, um, the shortage of labour and the cost of labour rising. But that that is a finite um, situation because right. there's no way small businesses can actually endure these sorts of pressures for too long more. And unless there's a significant measure, a significant package of government measures to help small businesses in the budget, I think you could see a lot of small businesses go to the wall over the next 12 months. Uh, To me, it seems logical and it seems inevitable unless, as I say, we get significant levels of government support. And listeners here will say, well, you know, why should government step in and subsidise businesses at this juncture? Well, uh, I I think the answer to that is if we don't subsidise businesses, they will disappear And we as consumers will be worse off as a result of that. Indeed, the... And they
0: are the cornerstone of
2: our economic life. The the high streets of our towns and villages. Over 99% of businesses in this country are SME. They account for about 65% of business employment in the economy. Um, And they also make a very significant contribution to rural, regional economic growth and development. They're a key part of the streets of our towns, villages and cities around the country. So if you were to see a massive closure of small businesses, you know, the the economic and social impact of that, I think, would far outweigh any financial support that the government would have to give those businesses to help them survive. Um, in an ideal world, you you would not want to have to subsidise businesses like this, uh, but um, on a cost benefit basis, I think the benefits of supporting those businesses would far outweigh the costs of doing so. So, but that's, you know, socially and economically, it's, it's a choice we have to make. Um, and I, I hope the right choices are made. I think small businesses, I think the focus here cannot just be on households. Small businesses are also suffering significantly at the moment and they do need to be helped. If not, they will disappear and then you will get a significant structural employment problem in the economy because many of those small businesses employ workers that may not be very highly skilled and would find it very difficult, for example, to transition into working the IT industry or so on. So you could have a structural shift in uh, the labour force here and in unemployment and that would then represent an even bigger problem to try and address once this cost of living crisis passes.
0: Okay Jim uh, we're very grateful to you. So the last question about interest rates and the exchange rate between the euro and sterling and uh, dollar of course There's the the exchange rates are uh, being quite volatile at the moment and the dollar against the pound sterling and indeed against the euro uh, is very, very strong. Uh, That's a a significant factor in all of these calculations as well, is it?
2: Uh, It it is indeed, Damon, and I've just got my first visa bill that contains a few items of expenditure in the United States. And for the first time in many, many years, Uh, The euro amount now exceeds the dollar amount. So uh, the prevailing theme in foreign exchange markets in recent times has been dollar strength and euro weakness. And um, on the back of that, you know, sterling has also weakened significantly against the dollar particularly um, and a little bit against the euro. But dollar strength is the dominant theme and dollar strength creates all sorts of problems for um, particularly Highly indebted emerging economies that have a lot of dollar denominated debt. So that, that's a, I guess, a larger, um, global emerging market problem. But, um, you also, you know, if you look at what's happening on the interest rate front, I mean, one of the reasons why the euro is under so much pressure at the moment is because the European Central Bank has now increased interest rates by 1.25% since July so we've had two increases a quarter and last week three quarters of 1%, that is pretty dramatic tightening and that tightening is occurring despite the fact that there are very very significant signs emerging that the European e- eurozone economy is losing considerable momentum and it seems inevitable at this stage that the eurozone economy is likely to go into recession over the next couple of quarters, unless there's a dramatic decline in energy prices. But at the moment, the risks to the eurozone economy are certainly well weighed on the downside. Uh, but yet the European Central Bank is going to deliver further interest rate increases. So I think that will, or I should never say will, in the context of exchange rates, but that scenario would suggest to me that... Um, uh, the, the euro is likely to continue to weaken on the exchanges because although there's significant interest rate tightening happening in the United States as well, uh, domestic demand in the United States is much stronger than in Europe. And there is more of an argument to be made for higher interest rates in the States than in Europe. And in fact, given that most of the inflation problems in Europe are being driven by supply side problems rather than excessive demand in Increasing interest rates is not a very appropriate response, uh, but the European Central Bank seems intent on making further monetary policy mistakes over the coming months. So, (laughs) And and of course, for Irish consumers and businesses, um, you know, a rising interest rate environment is the last thing you would require because that will just divert further expenditure away from normal expenditure towards... Um, servicing debt, and of course, as I've said, a lot of expenditures also being um, diverted to energy spending as well. So it's, it's, it's. I, I don't know, is it a treble or a quadruple, Pammy, <laughs> at this stage? There's a yeah. lot of a lot of headwinds facing us at the moment, and um, uh,
0: at yeah. this, and at this moment, Jim, I uh, should remind you and our listeners at the well that. The uh, new president of the uh, European Central Bank is Christine Lagarde. Um, Ms. Lagarde was a member of the French, Sarkozy's French government, and was up to no good there um, and had to uh, leave the premises as it were, as indeed Mr. Sarkozy was up to no good either. She's a lawyer, so why not put her in charge of a bank rather than have an economist?
2: Uh, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I won't ask you to <laughs> no, comment a, on Christine uh, Lagarde. I oh, know it's a good, it's a good question, Eamon. I mean, she wasn't the natural choice for the job. There's no she doubt about that. No, she certainly no. wasn't. But she had
0: been she'd been the, um, the head of the IMF, the International Monetary yes, Fund during Monitor that period Fund. of
2: extreme austerity. Yes,
0: yes, and yes. Uh, there's just uh, some people just float there at the top of our mm-hmm. systems, uh, and you wonder why. But that's a question for another day. Good question. (laughs) Jim, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's uh, Jim Power, one of our most brilliant economists, really, and one of our our most literate economists. And we're very grateful to Jim every time we hear from him, even when he's bringing uh, bad news, at least we can understand it. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.